Bruce Stempis. I'm a general surgeon and uh, have spent much of the last 14 years in the uh, developing world and doing various things. I'm the CEO of the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, and uh, I'd like to know kind of who I'm talking to. So how many of you are non-medical? You're really weird. Okay. Um, <laughs> nursing? Medical students? Residents? Surgeons? I mean, uh, uh, um, what do they call those things? Physicians? Uh, yeah, good. And any surgeons here? Good. You guys are sick. All right. Um, this lecture today is about PID. Not pelvic inflammatory disease, but pus in there. Okay, there's pus in there. And uh, so we're going to... And, of course, the, the answer to uh, all pus is let there be steel. So... Uh, are there any questions on the lecture? That's basically it. There is a triad. I, I, I thought about labeling this the unholy triad. Uh, there's a triad of pus. And uh, the way I actually think of it often is metastatic staph. Uh, it's staph that ends up in bone, muscle, and joints. Okay, And they often overlap. And we're going to talk about some of those things. And then if we have time and our excitement level has not gotten too high, We'll talk about a couple of other things where pus is an important factor in Africa and other places as well. The bacteriology between all three of these diseases is very similar. It's staph and it's staph and it's staph. Um, staph warriors by far being the most common, but the other staph, occasionally you'll see strep and occasionally E. coli. Uh, here in the United States or North America, uh, we do not see uh, pyomyositis to speak of uh, unless you're immunosuppressed. Um, overseas, that's not true. It can happen in just normal, healthy kids. They're probably immunosuppressed by their malnourishment and by the worms burden that they have and other things, but, but nothing we would identify. But uh, certainly when we start seeing weird bugs, then think immunosuppression. And, of course, in places where HIV is 50, 60, 70% of the population, it's often related to HIV uh, as well. Uh, here's a case of uh, pyomyositis, uh, pyomyositis, and in this case we're talking not so much about pyomyositis, but a subdivision of that called tropical pyomyositis, what we see in the tropics. It's almost always an abscess of the heavy proximal muscle, this thing's taking off on its own, I'm sorry, uh, of the trunk and the limb, and it can also include the iliopsoas and the pectoral muscles. And so these are the big proximal muscles that will get these abscesses in. They're often multifocal. Uh, and that's, again, this idea of metastatic staph. It's gotten spread by bacteremia, and it's often in multiple areas, and often you'll be just cleaning up one and it'll show up somewhere else. So I tend to think of it as multifocal in time and space uh, as well. In the early stage, these people will come in with a low-grade fever, and they'll have some local swelling. They never have erythema because this is down underneath the fascia, so it hasn't gotten all the way through the sub-Q and the muscle. Uh, and they'll have some mild pain and tenderness. The muscle just aches, and they'll often end up giving you a story that they were uh, struck or hit or some kind of minor trauma. Uh, it probably is unrelated most of the time, uh, just like... Uh, I did a lot of breast surgery, and the women would always come in, well, this mask came up after I hit my breast. You're always looking for an excuse as to what really caused the disease. It's unclear whether it's actually related or not. Uh, when you examine the muscles at this stage, you really don't feel anything fluctuant. It's woody. It's, it's indurated. It just it isn't normal consistency, but it isn't obviously uh, abscess as well. This stage will last anywhere from 10 to 12 days, and over the time, it'll migrate to a more a predominant swelling, uh, sometimes grow rapidly over a day or two, with their history, and you may 
have inflammation of the skin. It may be obviously that there's something underneath there. Sometimes, though, I've taken out a liter, liter and a half, two liters of pus, and the skin is absolutely normal looking, so you can't count on it as well. Uh, the nice thing about this is that uh, diagnosis is not hard. As long as you've got a needle with a, with a syringe on it, uh, you aspirate it, you get the classic creamy uh, staph pus, the diagnosis is clear. They usually at this point are screaming with the pain and uh, often will have high-grade fevers with this. Uh, the risk to it, this is staph. It does everything staph does. And some of these people can go into full-blown septic shock or toxic shock syndrome or those kind of things. So keep that in mind. Your diagnosis. Uh, I tell my students that you will never make any diagnosis that you don't think of. And uh, that's, that's clear here. You've got to put this on kind of your list of priorities. Uh, it's a you kind of always have to think about pyomyositis in, in a patient like this. Uh, aspiration is by far the most definitive diagnosis, the cheapest, the quickest, and accessible in virtually any place that you have a syringe and a needle. Um, I would advise you to use at least a 16 or an 18-gauge needle, because sometimes the pus is so thick it won't go through the smaller needles. Uh, so don't be kind in this case. You're trying to get a diagnosis. Uh, obviously, ultrasound is sometimes helpful, and sometimes that will help you pick up other abscesses you didn't expect. They're complaining so badly about this leg that, they're kind of ignoring the swelling in this leg, and sometimes you'll find something that you could take care of at the same anesthesia. Uh, psoas abscess is relatively common in Africa, especially in kids. And uh, the psoas, because it's so deep, you can't palpate it, and they will often present with flexion contractures of their hip uh, and sometimes lower abdominal masses and sometimes just the vague and wondrous fevers, and they don't feel good. And, uh, you know, you confuse it with appendiceal abscesses and other kind of conditions, empyema, septic arthritis of the joint, uh, other issues. Think psoas. That's one of those things that, especially in kids, the psoas can be involved, uh, and it's critical that you make that diagnosis uh, early. Anti-staph coverage. All these kids need anti-staph coverage. Um, if you get an aspirate, if you got it beforehand, do a gram stain. Uh, that's kind of something we've all been taught to do and nobody ever seems to do. Uh, but we can do gram stains in virtually any settings. Do gram stain. If it's gram-positive coxa, you've answered your question. If it's something weird, change your antibiotic coverage until you figure out what it is. Uh, here's a case of pyomyositis. Uh, you can see that this guy has had a previous uh, trauma to his leg. I don't remember right now what it was. Uh, but this, uh, this thigh had three and a half liters of pus in it. Okay? Um, that's at least three liters more than is normal. Um, so uh, one of the issues that you have is how do you treat these? Let me go ahead with a... Yeah. Uh, one of the things, this is a, a, another case very similar to that. You can see proximal muscles, uh, thigh. One of the temptations, especially when you're first doing this, is just to make this big, long incision so it's well filleted and I can pack it and so forth. You will regret that. Uh, do not fillet this thing open from end to end. It is important to drain the ends, and it's important to drain the sides, but don't do it from end to end. You're better off making a relatively short incision, enough that you can get your hand and your gauze in there and do whatever you need to do, but then take penroses and make a series of counter incisions and tie the penroses together. That allows you to pull up on the penrose and irrigate underneath there. What you, If you open this thing wide open and pack that, it will take weeks to months to years for that thing to close. You don't want to do that. Uh, you just want it to drain it. That plus proper antibiotics plus decent nutrition 
will close it reasonably well. So make relatively small incisions, but you want to get your finger in there, break up all the loculation so you have one big cavity, and then as far as you can reach on that side, make a little incision as far as you can reach on the other side so it's well-drained with a series of penroses. Uh, I'll show you a picture later on of somebody in a similar disease. That they'll give you a clue. Uh, for those people that are having contracture issues, be sure to splint them. It's much easier to splint them while they're under anesthesia, straighten it back out, make sure it's straight, put them in a position of function, then to deal with the contracture. Once you've got the contracture, this is really too with the little kids with the psoas. They'll get it up there, and it doesn't take long for that leg to contracture, and then for the rest of their life they're trying to walk uh, with their leg up like that, straighten it out under anesthesia, and keep them in traction until the inflammation goes down and they're able to do that. Okay? Septic arthritis is something that we don't see a whole lot here in the United States. Um, it uh, is pretty common there, and again, it's the big proximal joints. So it's the knee, the hip, the shoulder, and the ankle, statistically in that order. Uh, any one of those obviously is important. Uh, septic arthritis can come from osteomyelitis. From osteomyelitis in the, in the bone next to it and just work its way up through the epiphyseal plate and come into the joint. Um, and that's true up to about six months of, of age. Uh, it can be penetrating agents, but most of the time it appears to be metastatic staph. It just, it got there and you can't come up with any real good history. Always look for associated osteo. Look for pyomyositis. If you have pyomyositis, look for septic arthritis and osteo. If you have, what's the other one left? Look for the other two. Uh, but, um, it, it will occur. Most of these kids actually come in largely with they won't move their joint. Some will have high fever, up to about half. Uh, some will have significant pain, but most of them, they really don't complain. They just won't move it, and they won't let you move it uh, without screaming. Uh, it's that pain with movement and the refusal to move it that's sometimes the only sure sign. On physical examination, you often don't see anything except they will not let you move that leg. They'll, they'll keep it uh, frozen. Uh, again, you can have multiple joints involved. If it's the leg or the, or the knee or the ankle, often there's enough warmness around there that you can actually feel that and give you a clue what's going on with that. Um, sorry? Um, the pain can get more severe. Again, they'll often give you a history of... That's wrong. It really went crazy, didn't it? Going the wrong way. All right. There we go. Sorry. Um, what you're going to do on your clinical diagnosis is aspirate. And um, for those of you that are not really comfortable with that... Uh, most of you probably know about primary surgery. Has everybody heard about primary surgery? Primary surgery is a textbook written by pathologists telling you how to do surgery, which gives you a little clue. Uh, but it's designed for a first-year Kenyan district officer to do whatever comes in. And uh, you can kind of sneer at that, but I will tell you I've used it constantly. It, it bails you out on a regular basis. Uh, it's actually available through the teaching aids at low cost. If you want your own book, it's on as a Wikipedia. So you can scan it. Chapter 7 is the chapter you want, by the way, for plus and all these things. It tells you how to aspirate when you don't, when you haven't been taught, but there's you or the witch doctor and you've got the book. So you're going to be doing the aspiration. Um, and it gives you a... Wikipedia. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a wiki. Now, excuse me. If you go and uh, just look for primary surgery, 
in, in Wiki, it will show up. Okay, not the entire book is there, but it's it's enough for this. Uh, I'm sorry, let's go back up this. Where we go? No, I'll say this here. So that's a that's a great uh, text and often helps you uh, know what to do and how to do it when you don't have any help and nobody else to teach you. Okay. Uh, if it's positive, and of course normally you shouldn't be able to get any fluid out of there, but if you get some and it's either turbid or your gram stain is positive uh, or it's pus then you're going to have to take them to the operating room. So now you turn the page over in the book, and it tells you where to make your incisions and how to drain it. Uh, draining pus is not particularly difficult. The answer is don't cut anything that pulses and get the pus out of there. And they'll, they'll tell you what to do. What you're going to try to do is to put your fingers in there and get an idea of how badly the bone is involved or what the cartilage is involved and drain this thing. I don't know what's going on here. I'm sorry. Skip that. Um, again, split in the position of function. Get their leg extended, keep their knee at only about 10 degrees so that they can work in both directions, uh, work on the joints, and get the pus out of there. Uh, when you open it up, you just irrigate, irrigate, and irrigate. Sometimes you can leave the joints open. Most of the time, you're going to try to put a penrose or something in there so it'll drain. Antibiotic coverage, antibiotic coverage, and antibiotic coverage. Uh, one of the things that's really particularly important, I have found particularly the knee and the hip, it's not unusual to have to take them back in a couple of days and irrigate and do it again uh, just to keep that pus out of there until the antibiotics really kind of kick in. Acute osteomyelitis. Acute osteomyelitis is not really well understood, I think, in America uh, because we have it infrequently and it's kind of shunted off to the specialists and most of us don't really see it a whole lot. Uh, it is very critical that you have both an early diagnosis and aggressive treatment. In the United States, we will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to treat chronic osteomyelitis. It isn't going to happen in the developing world. You've got one chance to treat this disease properly, and that's when it's acute, and that's when it's early. So you throw everything you have at it when it's presenting early, because once it's turned chronic, you will never cure it again. It just won't happen. Uh, you have to change your paradigm, uh, what you're going to do. They will all... It's doing it by itself. Okay. Uh, chronic osteomyelitis is almost never cured in the, in the developing world. How does it present? Usually they'll complain of pain in the bone. And it's most commonly in the tibia, the femur, or the humerus. So they'll just come in and they'll say that things are aching in that area. They will usually give you a history of trauma. Probably doesn't have anything to do with it, uh, but that's their explanation. Uh, it can become amazingly severe pain and a very high fever. And the most remarkable th what is going on? The most remarkable thing is you don't find anything. You look at it and it's really totally not very impressive. Um, except that if you push on it or tap on it, they don't like that. That's the best you can do. It's normally going to occur in the metaphyses of the long bones near the epiphyseal plates. So it's going to be on one end or the other as a general rule. The diagnosis in this situation is clinical. X-rays are absolutely normal. It, they haven't, there's nothing in the periosteum. It hasn't developed. It's a normal examination. It, it must have a timer on it, but I didn't have it when I went through them earlier today. Uh, so, excuse me, I'm sorry. You might see periosteodema, but you're not going to see anything else. However, when you aspirate it, that's what you get. That was that man's x-ray. This was his aspiration. Clear amount of pus. 
Now, what you're going to do with that is you're going to anti-staff, of course. You're going to elevate and split the limb no matter what you do so it can't go. Now, what, what's the critical part about osteomyelitis? We all know that there's a periosteum around the bone. And the periosteum is, of course, where the blood vessels are going to be coming into that bone. And, of course, uh, in some places, uh, the feeding arteries, the nutrient arteries, are coming through the periosteum. And so if the pus lifts it off, it literally can devascularize the bone. But what we often don't understand is that the bone has its blood supply from two sides. There's an endosteum as well. There's a layer inside the bone marrow. And so we can lift off one, and the bone will not die. It dies when both get lifted off. So the most critical factor here is to certainly drain the periosteum, but if you don't drain the endosteum or see at least if there's pus there, you're going to be in trouble. And so here you can see the periosteum there. If that gets lifted off, then the bone uh, is going to be supplied by this endosteum, which has been lifted off as an artifact. Uh, but if the endosteum lifts off, now you've got a piece of bone that has no blood supply. It will die, and now we're in chronic osteomyelitis, and we're never going to cure it. So how do we treat it? Uh, the most important thing is you make an incision over this area where you aspirated. Don't cut any of those pulsatile blood ducts anymore or any of the nerves. And other than that, you just go down to the bone, and it'll be fairly obvious. You just follow the pus down. In this situation, the periosteum has always been lifted off. So wherever you feel raw bone, that's where the osteomyelitis is. But, uh, so you're going to irrigate that, and you're going to drain it. You're going to make sure that's drained as well as possible. Now you have to consider the endosteum. What do you do with that? You just take a drill and just drill through the bone. And when it, you'll feel it pop as it goes through. And as you pull the drill out, if pus shoots out, you've answered your question. If there's no pus, you don't have to do anything more. You've got really early osteomyelitis, and you've already drained it in antibiotics. If it is, there's pus in the bone marrow aspect of things, then we're going to have to uh, drill that. You just drill these holes. And if there's really pus, what we'll do, let me see if I can take this one off for a minute. Figure out which one's which. I'm afraid to move. I'm going to be strangulated. Okay. I'm going to screw up their recording. I'm sorry. I'll do it for just a minute. I hope you go out and buy that recording. That'll sound very nice. <laughs> You drill the holes. What you do is just you drill four holes like this and use those holes as the corner of your rectangle and you cut a trough in the bone, okay? Just so that that bone marrow, you can decompress it and so forth. You have to be careful if you take off too much of the bone. Of course, you can destabilize the thing, so you're going to want to splint it or give it some extra strength while that area heals in. But that isn't great, great surgical skills. That's just a matter of can you draw put four things in a rectangle and connect them, uh, and then irrigate. And that's all you have to do. If you do that, however, though, you've decompressed the bone marrow, and now you have a reasonable chance that this is actually going to cure, uh, be cured by uh, continued antibiotics and letting this thing heal up. The reality is, of course, that here in the United States, if you have osteomyelitis, you're going to get anywhere from 6 to 12 weeks of IV antibiotics. There's not a single one of your patients that can afford that, okay? And so uh, what uh, that will bankrupt the family, it will bankrupt the village, et cetera. So what you end up having to do is making a compromise. 
And often what you'll do is you'll use IV antibiotics until everything kind of calms down, the white count calms down, and then you're going to try to finish the rest of it with six weeks of oral antibiotics if they can afford that. If you catch this at acute uh, osteomyelitis, that actually can be curative. If you waited till there's dead bone and all the other things in chronic, or chronic osteo, you're not going to have any success whatsoever. Once it's converted to chronic osteomyelitis, there's some terms that you need to, to renew. And you guys have all heard these again, but let me go back through them for the two who are asleep in that lecture. Um, the dead bone itself is called a sequestrum. And, of course, when we sequester something, we're putting it off. So this is a piece of dead bone that has been put off by the rest of the body. And that can be a small piece. That can be a big piece. But it's a foreign body. Even though it came from the body, it's a foreign body. Uh, it can never be gotten rid of uh, well. It can't be digested. It's going to have to come out of there. Uh, around it, the surviving bone and the periosteum is going to produce new bone. And you're going to create this new bone. And that, who, in, in a fracture, we call that callus. Uh, in osteomyelitis, uh, osteomyelitis, we call it the uh, involucrum. And what that's going to do is create new bone around this piece of dead bone. It's uh, because the, os the periosteum has been stripped off, just like it does with a the fracture, then the periosteum responds by creating new bone uh, with that. Um, the goal then for chronic osteo, the goal for acute osteomyelitis is cure. That's aggressive. You work very, very hard. For chronic, it is let's get this thing calmed down and hope we can get four, five, six, eight, ten years before it comes back. It will come back, but we're just trying to get their quality of life to a stage that they can do well with this uh, particular disease, and it's going to flare again. You can give these people all the antibiotics you want, and it's not going to work until you get that sequestrum out of there, until you get that foreign body out of there. So don't, because they've got this draining sinus and it's coming out and so forth, don't, don't waste their time and their money and their travel by giving them antibiotics. It's not going to do any good. You've got to get the x-ray and you've got to figure out, what can I do to make this improve? Uh, it got worse on its own. Unless you can change something, it's never going to get any better on its own, and that's an important concept. I've seen a lot of these poor folks give, you know, literally uh, – dozens and dozens of weeks of, of antibiotic treatment over the years, and they've lost lots of money, and you haven't done anything. I want you to kind of to look at this. The, the trick, again, and of course, is to remove the sequestrum. What you want to do is get rid of that dead bone. Well, what's that look like? One of the issues that you have is if that dead piece is a big piece, don't take it out too soon because until the involucrum has healed alongside of it, if you take that big piece out of there, now I've just got this floppy arm in here. I had, before I learned that lesson, I will tell a story on myself. I had a little kid who was a seven or eight year old. She came in with osteo here, and she had this bone literally sticking out of her arm. I'll show you the picture here in just a minute. And so um, I just couldn't help that. You know, the answer is I grabbed it and I pulled it out, and it turns out it was the full length of her, her humerus. And now her arm is just kind of, you know, I thought, oh crap. <laughs> so what I did was I put her in a hanging cast. Uh, so there's lots of weight on this thing. Poor kid couldn't barely move because of the weight pulling on that, trying to maintain this, this humeral length. What was interesting is in seven days, it was solid bone. That thing had been trying to heal that. I've never seen bone go like that before. She'd been, she'd been trying to heal it for months and months and months, and you know, once we got out of there, it healed solid, and she really came up with a, with a decent thing. But that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have taken it out. I should have waited until she had created enough bone around it. Uh, as well. In this case, uh, looking at this x-ray, you can see this little uh, kind of shadow here around this white bone here. That's the dead bone. 
But you can see that she has developed, or he has developed, this huge amount of bone all the way around it. I could split that bone, create my little uh, groove, get that bone out of there, and there's lots of other bone there to keep it uh, back in shape. So that's really what you want to do with these patients is get them to the point that there's enough involucrum that you can take that out. Now, sometimes when you do that, of course, you've destabilized the bone a little bit. And so either a cast or an external fixator if necessary, whatever is necessary to help keep it at length and keep it in position uh, is going to be critical. Here's that little kid, okay? And you can see on this x-ray, this whole piece of bone from here down to here was all the dead bone. Now, now excuse me, this was a different child because the other one didn't have any bone here. But this is a case where there's enough involucrum that I could pull this one out and it came out with no trouble because there was enough of the other bone and she was stabilized. And it was interesting, once I healed, pulled that out, this, that child had healed that wound in 10 days. Okay. Now, I just kept her on antibiotics until her temperature was down and her white count was down. I didn't try to treat her with six weeks of antibiotics because I wasn't going to cure that bone. And, I, and there was no point in creating a superbug that uh, would be a problem in the future. If you have a small sequestrum, a really small one, you can remove it. The bone's stable around it. It's fairly obvious when you see it. And here's a ex- case of that where this is just a single sequestrum. We just took the... T- Tunnel off there was a little piece of bone, took it out, and this wound healed up beautifully. Now, it won't stay healed. It'll eventually come back. But a lot of these people will get five, six, seven, eight, ten years before they get uh, problems with it again, and they're pretty happy with that result. The other thing to remember always is that bone will not heal unless it's covered with soft tissue. And so if you have raw bone, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to do some sort of transfer flaps or get into somebody that's going to do that. A piece of raw bone just basically won't heal uh, successfully. I want to talk about a couple of other uh, possibilities for pus. We started at what? Four? Three, you mean? Excuse me? So three, four, good. Um, Ludwig's angina is a pretty common uh, situation that you see in Africa. Again, we don't see it a lot in the United States, and we certainly don't see it to the same extent. But it behooves you to know just a little bit about it. The mouth is full of all sorts of anaerobic, nasty bugs. And uh, so it's streptococcal, the anaerobic streps, uh, some occasionally staph, bacteroides, etc. You'll treat these people with uh, either high do- very high-dose penicillin, or most people have now gone to high-dose penicillin, pus, metronidazole, or some sort of anaerobic coverage, clindamycin, etc. Uh, and on occasionally, they'll respond to just the antibiotics, and you don't have to do anything in terms of draining the pus and infection. Uh, you'll remember from anatomy that the pharynx has a cervical fascia that covers the whole thing, but between it and the spine, there's just a plane there. You can take your finger and go any way that you want. Well, pus does that very beautifully. And so once it goes from the abscessed teeth back into that retromandibular area, it can go all the way down into the meostinum, all the way up into the head, and get this amazing infection that goes along with it. It's almost always due to the abscess of the second and third year molar, third uh, molars, uh, and usually lower, although it can be the upper as well. Here's a patient that presented in Togo. Um, you could see that he's obviously markedly swollen around his whole neck. You don't really feel anything. You touch this, and it's very indurated, but there's no obvious pus that you can find. And, of course, he's talking like this. And he's having a little bit of trouble talking, a little bit of trouble swallowing and so forth. And uh, you can't, can't lay him down because um, if you lay him down, he can't breathe. And so what would you do for this patient? Uh, 
Try aspirating it or an ultrasound if you can and see if you can find anything. That's certainly a possibility. I did that. It didn't find anything that I was convinced was pus that I could drain. I could take him just to the operating room. I've taken him to the, uh, to the, uh, if we had ultrasound, we'd find, we'd drain it. Uh, we'd take him to the operating room. Uh, what we did with this fella is we put him on just high dose antibiotics and I kept a trach tray at the bedside. Okay? Because I had no idea whether I was going to need that uh, in, at any time in the future. Interesting enough, he ended up with, within 36 hours of very high dose antibiotics keeping him up and being watched very carefully. We didn't have to, to drain him and he never really, uh, there had to been pus in there, but I didn't have to flay his neck all open to find it. And so sometimes you can be very careful and watch them. When in doubt, take them to the operating room. If you can find pus, you definitely have to drain them. And when you drain them, don't drain it just where you found the pus. Run your finger back behind the esophagus to the other side and open it up the other side as well. Uh, all those big pulsatile blood ducts, don't open those, okay? Uh, but go alongside of it, and uh, that works fine. This is a man, uh, another case, that had uh, Ludwig's uh, uh, angina, and they didn't drain him adequately. And he ended up with a necrotizing fasciitis that went down into his mediastinum and into so-called flesh-eating gangrene. He had it all over his chest wall, all the way down to his costal margin. All the fascia was gone, etc. Uh, what we didn't want to do is fillet him wide open, okay, because that would have just, we would have lost all that skin. So this is essentially the kind of thing that we talked about with the pyomyositis. We made enough decisions that we could do the fascia and leave most of the skin and put a whole series. And he looks like, of course, he had, well, survived an explosion in a Penrose factory. Uh, but um, <laughs> we ended up only having to skin graft a very small portion, and all the rest of it came back, uh, even though he had lost this tremendous amount of sub-Q and fasciitis. This was just skin on top of raw muscle. All the fascia had been gone. It was a classic necrotizing uh, fasciitis. So keep this in mind, and this is why you drain the other ones early so it doesn't get to this point. Remember airway. If you do ACLS or any other thing, ATLS, it's airway, airway, airway. Again, keep the airway in mind. Don't let these people die for the lack of it. Uh, they can progress very, very rapidly. Uh, that first man, I got away with it, but I certainly, had he gone the other way, I could have been easily criticized because I didn't uh, intubate him. Um, <laughs> it's talking about chest tubes. I'm putting chest tubes in there. Um, get the dentist involved very early. What's their problem? They have an unroofed abscess. Uh, what's the roof of the abscess? A tooth. So they're going to have to have that thing pulled out of there in order to solve that problem. Uh, look for mandibular osteomyelitis. Most of these people will need another x-ray to make sure that they've not developed acute osteo. And if they do, with the dentist's help, get that infected bone out of there. Keep it unroofed. Keep on antibiotics. This is a case you can actually cure that osteo if you do it early enough. Don't let it become chronic. Uh, and every time, look at these patients for abscess disease and abscess disease and abscess disease uh, and take them back as you need to. I want to talk a little bit about empyema. Uh, empyema is not any different in Africa than it is here or any other developing world in here, but we don't have the same equipment. Okay, uh, In many of the places where you're going to be working, you're going to wash the chest tube that you used from the other person. 
and you think, oh my goodness, but the answer is there's nothing else, okay? And so, you know, that's an issue. And um, those of you that think all chest tube drainage goes in one of those little plastic boxes thingies, uh, you need to get out. You need to get out the things and understand how to do underwater seals and how to do a controlled uh, drainage and make it work. The most important thing is at least know how to make a water seal uh, out of something. Uh, because that's often, you don't have them. Chest tube bottles often are not there. You're going to make it out of open vinegar bottles. You're going to make it out of whatever you need to do. You need to understand the principles behind that. Um, the most important thing about empyemas is uh, once you've made that diagnosis, and of course the classic paracentesis, and you look for all the lab work. for. Now, you are not going to send it off for... LDH serum levels, and you know, you're going you're to struggle getting some of those things. But once you've made your diagnosis, the answer is drain it, and drain it well. And so the biggest chest tube you've got, and you might need more than one chest tube, and if they're not better in a day or two, stick in that, find that other place, get an ultrasound, stick in another chest tube. If you've got to wait, if you've got to get to the point that you're going to have to go on to the operating room for a decortication, you're not going to have anybody that's going to do that. They're not going to survive. They don't have a ventilator. So be really aggressive at the early stages so that you can avoid, hopefully, the last stages. Um, the other thing is you need to understand the idea of conversion to an empyema tube. Um, anybody tell me what an empyema tube is? It's a tube in empyema, obviously. What's that mean? What's an empyema tube? Yes, ma'am. Leave it open. That's exactly right. What you're trying to do in this situation, if I have an abscess, we did our pyomyositis, and we did that. Of course, everything's going to collapse around that, and pretty soon everything's going to be stuck in a very short period of time. The problem is, of course, the the chest may not be able to expand depending on the abscess, and, of course, the ribs don't collapse worth a darn. And so what you're going to have to understand is that you have this constant cavity that's there. And so the only way we're going to let that close properly is it's already contaminated. You've got to let it close by granulation, and that's a long, drawn-out process. So as soon as uh, the chest tube is no longer fluctuating, and it's been 7, 8, 10 days, and you know it's stuck up there, then you can open that chest tube to air. They're not going to get a pneumothorax because, of course, they've had that inflammation next to the chest tube. And now you have whatever 6 or 8 inches of tube you had in there. And you either suture to the skin or you put a safety pin through it and tape it or something so it stays there. And uh, in a couple of three days, you pull it out, oh, the grand total of a centimeter or so. And you tape it again, and three or four or five days later. So over four to six weeks, you're slowly pulling this tube out and letting it uh, granulate. If you pull it out, and, and King's uh, primary surgery tells you to go ahead and pull it, that's a mistake. You're going to get an abscess again most of the time. So go slow. Uh, people don't like the idea of plastic hanging out their side. They seem not to like the idea of dying of abscesses either. So you have to explain it to them, uh, what they're doing. An LOS or flap is sometimes available. Uh, the, looking around this room, I suspect there's only about two of you that are old enough to know what an LOS or flap or has ever seen one. Uh, what that is is basically some of these chronic empyemas never close. And so what you have to do is go and cut the ribs out and make a flap and just let it open so they have this constant draining site to the outside so for the rest of the life but at least they can't get an empyema and they can't die of sepsis and so you'll occasionally see that and occasionally be necessary in Africa or some of these other countries 
One last disease I want to talk briefly about, and then we'll open it up to other questions. Uh, POTS disease is a real issue. POTS disease, of course, is the name for vertebral osteomyelitis and abscesses. Um, the greatest number of these cases are going to be in the lower thoracic and the upper lumbar areas. Uh, it's the body itself that gets involved. This is tubercular osteomyelitis. That's literally what it is, and you'll get an abscess. Only about 1 to 1.5% of TB patients will get this. But when you're looking at HIV involving half the population and all of them with TB, this becomes a pretty big number in a lot of our settings that we're, we're there. Uh, the casi, sometimes there's real pus, sometimes it's just that caseating granuloma, it's just this cheesy stuff and the thing kind of breaks down. Uh, the real problem is, is that it will go through the posterior aspect of the body and start to encroach on the spinal cord. And so some of these kids uh, and adults will be totally paralyzed. Uh, there are some other things occasionally that would be confused with this, Showerman's disease in pediatrics, um, which is a, a developmental issue with it. Uh, in adults, it could be ulcers of other things. It could be metastatic cancer. It could be fungal disease, sarcoidosis, giant cell tumors, etc. But usually the presentation makes it really clear. They act like they've got TB. And they've got this constitutional symptoms, weight loss, low-grade fevers, night sweats, uh, malaise, all that sort of thing. They often will have that for a while before the spinal deformity. Pain is a very late sign. Most of the time this is painless. That's why they don't come in. Neurologic signs are often late, and they'll come and go depending on the amount of inflammation. So when do you do surgery? When it's clear that you're getting spinal cord problems, you've got spasticity, you've got motor issues going on, and any time it comes on acutely, uh, paraplegia of any sort, you're going to do that. If you've been treating them properly, but they're getting worse, you're going to have to operate on those patients. Um, some of these other issues, uh, if, you're, if your chemotherapy is not working, if the disease is coming back, uh, the kyphosis is getting worse are obvious. The real problem is, is that in many places, this is going to require a thoracotomy or a combined thoracotomy, abdominal laparotomy, and many places just don't have the ventilator support of the people to do that. Um, you will often have to go in there. What you have to do is literally biopsy it, confirm your diagnosis, scrape all that stuff out, and now you don't have any bone. So you're going to have to put some sort of strut, some sort of metal in there. Um, usually they're going to have to be externally mobilized, immobilized in some sort of jacket. <coughs> that can be done on a plaster, of course. You'd like to do a posterior fusion. Why do you bother? Because 70 to 90% of the people that are paralyzed can walk again. And that's just an amazing uh, opportunity to, to help these people. That's what it looks like. You've all heard of kyphosis. This is gibbous. Now, this is the classic thing where the bone literally is at 90 degrees there, and this little boy right there, uh, and he was uh, paralyzed. And again, on the x-ray, you can see that the vertebral body here is coming straight down to 12, and then L2 is basically gone. It's taking this 90-degree uh, episode. I want to give you <coughs> – this is what you have on this one case that was paralyzed in uh, Tenwick. This is Russ White's case. You can see that the body is basically being destroyed over there, and when he scraped everything out, there's literally no vertebral body. Uh, there are a lot of uh, poor choices, uh, but probably the best of the poor choices uh, is he took out a rib, banded it all wired together, and stuffed it in there. Uh, and uh, this is the lady. She was totally paralyzed, and this was her walking before she went home. So there's a, there's a, a real goal for this uh, that is effective despite the, the uh, terrible uh, disease that it can be. Any questions? You're now pus experts. Congratulations. <laughs> I think most of you can recognize pus. Um, any, any questions on any of these diseases? Any cases that you have that are fascinating? Any of you want to...
correct anything I said that was wrong. I'm willing for that as well. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, well, any of the methicillin uh, staff, uh, you know, cephal, they're all cross coverage. Uh, you don't have any vancomycin. So, unfortunately, if they're if they're MRSA and there's some of those around there, they're going to die. If you can't handle it with old-fashioned mechanical draining of pus and so forth, yeah. And it's frustrating because uh, the vancomycin is so expensive. In a country where you make two hundred dollars for the year, it just isn't an option. And, you know, this is a, one of these constant, Dave Stevens had a wonderful lecture on ethics, and this is, this is one of these wonderful situations. Do I spend all the money on one patient if it closes my hospital because I've used all my discretionary income for the month? You know, I mean, it's, those are constant battles that we, we get into, and, and I don't know the answers. And the origin of the staff is because usually you don't find any break no. in what we do know is that uh, this was used to be thought a disease of the nationals, not of the Europeans back in the colonial period. Uh, and uh, it's probably a combination of nutrition, worm burden, and wearing shoes, and, and maybe other clothes. But just walking through the bushes, you can get a minor scratch or you know, step on something. That's presumably where it comes, but nobody knows. Thank you for your time. <laughs>